0: This morning we're continuing our congregational journey through the Gospel of John. And so we're going to be picking up with the last verse of chapter 7 and working into chapter 8. So if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, the words will be on the screen behind me. Um, We've said a few times, we've been working through John, that John makes the purpose of writing his Gospel crystal clear in chapter 20, verse 31. He writes, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John recorded a a comprehensive and detailed record of the life of Jesus so we may read about him and we may believe in him. For the believer, the Gospel of John should renew and refresh your faith in Jesus. For the unbeliever, the Gospel of John should draw you closer to Jesus. This is why John wrote his gospel, and this is why we are walking through his gospel together, for the saved to be strengthened and for the lost to be found. And so I've referenced that verse a, a number of times. We've been working through John the last few months, but I think it's important for our purposes today to look at the verse that is right before that, John 20, 30. It's in John 2030, before John established the purpose of writing his gospel, he makes a fascinating statement. He says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And then in the next chapter, he closes out his gospel with these words Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So as John is is landing the plane, as he's wrapping up his gospel, he says, listen, a lot of other stuff happened. There were more sermons, there were more miracles, there were more healings, there were more conversations, but I simply couldn't record all of it. Because there's not enough ink and paper in the world for me to to report on all of it. I didn't write about all of it because I physically couldn't write about all of it. Let me put this into context uh, for a minute. I'll be 31 years old in May, so I've almost been on earth for the same amount of time as Jesus. Um, So let's say that a renowned biographer like David McCullough, who's written biographies on Harry Truman and John Adams and Theodore Roosevelt, let's say he decides he wants to write a biography on the first 30 years of my life. It's a stretch, but just follow me. There's a point to this. He's been awarded two Pulitzer Prizes. He's been given a a Presidential Medal of Freedom, and now he wants a new challenge. Now he's going to write about a pastor in Valdosta, Georgia, the Bo Washburn story that no one asked for. He's going to write that story. So he comes, and he, he comes to Valdosta. He asks questions. He sets up interviews. He does his homework. He does his research. He gathers every interesting detail about my life, and he puts Every interesting detail of my life down on paper. And I would estimate when he finished his book, he would realize that he didn't have a book at all. He had more of a booklet. Because if you're writing about me and you're covering every important detail in my life, you can cover it in a few pages. But if you're writing about Jesus, you can't cover every important detail. You just can't do it. There aren't enough pages. See, the the major themes of the four Gospels are generally the same. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each cover the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but they cover it in their own way. They cover it from their own perspective with slight variations. For example, only Matthew records the visit from the wise men, the Sermon on the Mount, the parable of the unforgiving servant, the description of the final judgment. Mark matches up with Matthew about 90% but there's a couple things that he covers that Matthew doesn't. Only Luke has Jesus' childhood visit to the temple, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that tension between Mary and Martha, that story that we love, that's only in Luke. And we've seen this in John. John is the most different of the four Gospels. Only John records the calling of Andrew, uh, Philip, and Nathaniel. Only John covers the changing of water into wine, the conversations with Nicodemus, and the woman at the well, the healing of the crippled man by the pool of Bessadia. And we've already covered all these in the first seven chapters, and only John has this story we're going to look at today, the story of Jesus and the adulterous woman. But here's the thing. We aren't sure if John wrote this story. We aren't sure if John recorded this story. Depending on your translation, you may see a special note about this story. The original King James doesn't have it, but the the modern English translations have it. If you're reading from the ESV, the HCSB, the NASB, the NIV, the New King James version of the RSV, you'll see this section bracketed off. You'll see a parenthetical statement. You'll see a footnote that says something along these lines: the earliest manuscripts do not include John seven fifty three through eight eleven. Because most New Testament scholars believe this wasn't part of the original gospel. They believe John didn't write this story. And they have a compelling case. Because the story is missing from all Greek manuscripts from before the 5th century. The story is is completely overlooked in the writings of the early church fathers. They omit it. They move from John 7.52 to John 8.12. Speaking of which, if the story were removed, it flows rather nicely from John 52 to John 8.12. And when the story did start appearing in manuscripts, it popped up in different places. Some put it after 736 or after 744. Some put it at the end of John 21.25. One manuscript even had it in Luke 23.38. And then the final thing, the style... And vocabulary in this story is, is different from the rest of the gospel. And so for these reasons, New Testament scholars have, have come to the conclusion that John didn't write this. Even if I, and here's just what three guys said. Don Carson, despite the best efforts to prove this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against us. The modern English translations are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or regulate it to a footnote. Bruce Metziger, the evidence for the non-John authorship of this story of the adulteress are overwhelming. Leon Morris, the textual evidence makes impossible to hold this section as an authentic part of the gospel. Now, before you become overly concerned about the reliability of the book in your lap, before you say, if this story was added later, what else was changed somewhere along the way? Let me just say, very little. There's only one other passage in the New Testament that's called into question the same way as this passage. It's at the end of Mark, Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. And so before we look at this passage, I just want to take a few minutes, and I want to talk about the dependability of the text in your hands. And you may say, Pastor, listen, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Please don't chase this rabbit and let our lunch get cold. And I I hear you. If you're sold on the the authenticity and the authority of Scripture, great. But I want you to know you are surrounded by a world who looks at the Bible as just another book on the shelves of Barnes & Noble. So it's important for us to be able to defend the Bible. If we're going to have any hope of a consistent gospel impact in our circles of influence, we must be able to defend the Bible. I mean, this week I had a church member reach out to me and say, I've been talking to a friend about Jesus and he's got all these questions that I can't answer. Can we please sit down some time and, and work through these together? If if you're engaging a skeptic with the gospel, you're going to need to be able to defend the Bible. And so before we get to the text, we must ask the question can we trust the words of the New Testament? Can we trust the the assessment of 2 Timothy 3.16 where Paul says the Scriptures are God-breathed, that they are the breath of God, they're profitable for teaching, preaching, reproof, and training in righteousness? I would argue yes, absolutely. So allow me to build that case for a second. So the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And the first Greek New Testament was printed on a printing press in 15 16. So for almost 1,500 years, the writings of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, and James were passed down through handwritten copies. They were passed down through the labor of, of many scribes. This is how we have access to the, the actual words written by the men who walked alongside Jesus. And when we consider the sheer number of manuscripts in existence, of the Greek New Testament, beside all other ancient writings, the results are remarkable. If you look at a few writings from around the same time, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars from 50 B.C. has 10 manuscripts in existence. Uh, Livy's Roman History from around Jesus' time has 20 manuscripts in existence. Tacitus's Writings of the History of the Roman Empire from 100 A.D. has two manuscripts in existence, and these documents are taught at college campuses all over the world like they are the gospel truth. Then on the contrary, there are 5,800 full and partial Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. There are 10,000 Latin manuscripts. There are 9,300 manuscripts in other various ancient languages. All of these handwritten copies have been collected, they've been captured electronically, and they've been preserved in libraries around the world. And because of the vast number of copies that we have, we can more effectively determine the intentions of the original author. Think about it this way. If you had two manuscripts of the Gospel of John, and that's it, and let's say one of them had this story, the adulterous woman, and the other one In that situation, you'd be hard-pressed to make a final decision about the passage in question. I mean, you'd only be able to to flip a coin, right? I mean, heads we keep it, tails we throw it out. I mean, it's 50-50. But if you have hundreds of manuscripts, you're able to build a stronger case. You obviously have more variations and you have more errors, but you're able to sort through them and find commonalities. Listen to how the great... 20th century scholar F.F. Bruce described the science of textual criticism, says if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact wording of the New Testament is in truth remarkably small. Now, I know I've probably already spent too much time talking about the reliability and dependability of the New Testament and and the science of of textual criticism. And and honestly, considering the time changes last night and we all lost an hour of sleep, this is a horrible morning to chase this rabbit and go down this road. And I understand that. But but, but please hang with me because I really want you to find confidence in these words from F.F. Bruce. I want you to see that based on the incredible preservation of fifty eight hundred manuscripts and and the hard work of scholars and translators over centuries and centuries, we have copies of scripture in our hands and, and on our Bible app where the margin of doubt is remarkably small. And the last thing I want to say to you is I mean the last thing I want for you to say is oh man, well, if the scholars aren't sure about this text and if it should be in the Bible, I mean what about Other text, or how can I count on any text? I want you to see those those brackets, those footnotes about this text. They shouldn't decrease your faith in the New Testament. They should increase your faith in the New Testament because they should show you that God providentially protected and preserved His Word for 2,000 years so you might know Him. I mean, understand that in that same amount of time, kingdoms have risen and fallen. Culture has drastically changed. Technology has turned the world upside down. Our world has changed a thousand times over, but the, God, the Word of God has remained the same. So I, I want you to see that before we, we deal with this text. And As we shift our attention to our passage, to John seven fifty 8 through 11, we can affirm two things about the passage. First, It was probably not originally written by the Apostle John. And we can't say for sure. We don't have the very first manuscript. I mean, if we did, Ken Ham would own it, and it would be at the Creation Museum. But we we don't have it. Um, It's probably good. We'd probably worship it anyway. So we can't say 100% for sure, but more than likely, John didn't write this story. But this story is probably a historical event that was added later. Most likely... It was a well-known, widely verified story from the life of Jesus. And it was shared so broadly among the members of the early church that it was recorded. And in many ways, this story fits in nicely with the rest of the Gospel of John. Jesus' compassion towards this woman mirrors His compassion towards the woman at the well and many others in the Gospel of John. Jesus' tense conversation, His showdown with the religious establishment mirrors a number of similar conversations in the Gospel of John. And so, in my opinion, this story falls under the umbrella of John 20.30 that we talked about earlier. This is one of the stories that just simply didn't make the cut. This is is part of the, the bonus footage, which should excite you and should make you ask the question, if this is one example of the bonus footage, what else is there? I mean, what other things did Jesus do? What other things did Jesus say? I mean, one of my first questions when I get to heaven is going to be, can I see the deleted scenes? Can can you show me the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't record? Can you tell me the stories that I haven't heard about? And this is likely one of those stories. And so let's, let's jump into it together. So we're going to pick up John seven fifty three. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So the scene, the scene shifts here from the Festival of Booths to an early morning teaching session in the temple. You'll remember from last week at the end of the Festival of Booths, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had, had sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. They were becoming increasingly frustrated and, and angry about His ministry. And so they sent the guards to arrest Him and they came back empty-handed. And you remember, they were furious. And, and the end of our passage last week showed the scribes and the Pharisees having some infighting. They're arguing with one another. They're fighting amongst themselves. And so now we're, we're shifting back to the temple. Jesus is holding court In the temple, he's teaching a large crowd. And then in verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees enter the story. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say. This they said to test him, that they might bring some charge against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So first, they set a trap for Jesus. The first thing we need to understand is that in the first century, it was incredibly rare for a person to be punished for adultery. And it wasn't because adultery wasn't happening. It it certainly was. It was because the law stipulated that you needed overwhelming evidence to bring a charge against someone. A couple of boxes had to be checked before you could even make an accusation. First, if you're going to accuse a person of adultery, you had to witness the person in the act. You, You couldn't make accusations based on a rumor. You couldn't make accusations based on your own suspicion. You couldn't make accusations if you found a man and a woman in a compromising position. If you saw them walking out of a hotel together, holding hands, you couldn't bring forward a charge of adultery. You had to witness the act. And then to make it more complicated, it couldn't just be you that witnessed the act. You had to witness the act with more witnesses. Two or more witnesses were required. You and a couple of your friends had to witness the act for you to be able to bring a charge against a person for adultery. And so there was this this really high standard for bringing a charge against a person committing adultery. So it's very unlikely these scribes and Pharisees accidentally caught her in the act. It was most likely a setup. They probably heard about a man and a woman who are having an affair in their community. And so they struck a deal with a man, who, by the way, is noticeably absent from the situation. The law stipulates that man and woman should be punished, but the man's not here for some reason. So they likely paid him off or, or blackmailed him, but, but somehow they manufactured an opportunity that they could catch this woman in the acts, so they could bring him before Jesus. And when you see it from that perspective, you see how how dark and and, and twisted this situation is. That they hated Jesus so much that they willingly ensnared a young woman in her own habitual sin to serve their purposes. That they used her as a a pawn to set a trap for Jesus. They wanted to play Jesus' well-known compassion for sinners against the demands of the law. And they felt their strategy was foolproof. They felt that they had put something in front of him that he couldn't talk his way out of. So they bring this woman forward and they say, you know the law. She broke it. You know the punishment. She deserves it. What do you say? See, if Jesus chose to treat her with mercy, then he'd be accused of breaking the law. But if Jesus upheld the law and called for her to be stoned, he'd violate Roman law and he'd lose his reputation for love and compassion. And so they're essentially asking Jesus, are you hard on people or are you soft on sin? And Jesus doesn't answer immediately. According to verse 6, he squats down and starts writing in the sand with his finger. So, So picture this. The scribes and Pharisees coming to Jesus with their their chests poked out. They're going to have their big gotcha moment. They have finally nailed this heretic to the wall. And they bring this woman forward and they explain the situation. They throw her at His feet and they say, What do you think about this? And Jesus just takes a step to the side. He squats down. And just starts drawing in the dirt. Can you imagine how much that had to frustrate them? Can you imagine how much that would have angered him that they, they come for this big moment, they finally got him, and he's just unbothered. And so they quickly grew impatient, waiting for his verdict, so they asked him again, and they continued to ask him. And then in verse 7, he finally answered them. So they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So they set what they thought was the perfect trap, and Jesus had the perfect response. He stood up. And he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He called their bluff, and then he returned to drawing on the ground again. And they were so convicted by His words, they couldn't even stay in His presence. I mean, look at the 180 that occurs here. They came smiling and gloating and skipping to Jesus. They'd staged the perfect trap. They were ready to strip Him of His power and His influence. And then they left with their tails tucked between their legs. They left broken and burdened by their own sins. But notice that in verses 7, 8, and 9, when Jesus finally speaks, He doesn't address the woman. You know, Her sin was, was already on the table. She was already exposed. He'd deal with her in a minute, but He didn't address her first. He didn't deal with the external sin. He started with the internal sin. He started with the sin that's unseen, the sin that's unknown, the sin that hides between behind dishonesty, arrogance, self-righteousness, and hypocrisy. That's where He went first. And for the rest of chapter 8, Jesus is going to have a similar conversation with the Pharisees. He'll proclaim in verse 12 that He's the light of the world. And then He will actively confront the darkness within them. Verse 24, He'll say, I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, You will die in your sins. Then he says in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then verse 44, he ramps it up a notch and he says, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. You will not find verse 44 on a Christian t-shirt or bumper sticker. Your father is devil. And we read about the Pharisees. We struggle to relate with relate to them because they're always actively working against Jesus and we clearly aren't on the same team. And so a lot of times we have a hard time drawing application from their experiences. But we should pay close attention here. Because they are being provided a universal lesson about Jesus. Jesus showing them for the light of the world to bring us from darkness into light, He must first expose the darkness we don't see or the darkness we are trying to hide. Now and let's, let's flesh those two scenarios out a little bit. That first scenario, you don't see your sin. You you have a blind spot in your faith. We see a situation like this come up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The, The prophet Nathan rebuked David. Most of us know David's story. David was the king of Israel. He could have anything he wanted. And one day he was at the top of his castle and he saw a woman named Bathsheba. A woman who was already married. And he said, you know what? I want her too. And so he brought her in. He committed adultery with her. When she became pregnant, he tried to cover that up. tried to bring her husband home from war in hopes that people would think it was his baby. When that didn't work, he sent her husband to the front lines. And so in, in short order, David went from adulterer to murderer. And then for about a year, he just lived unburdened by his clear hypocrisy. He just sat in this sin and let it fester. And so, Nathan the prophet came to him with a story about a rich man and a poor man. He said, David, let me tell you a story. There was a rich man who had many flocks and herds, and there was a poor man who had one little lamb who he loved. And he goes on to talk about how much this man loved his lamb. This lamb slept in his bed. This lamb ate from his table. He was one of those people, right? My wife's one of those people, so don't think that I'm condemning you for that if you let animals sleep in your bed. And then he goes on to say that one day the rich man was was cooking dinner for a friend who was coming into town. And instead of pulling from his vast livestock to prepare the meal, he stole the poor man's one lamb and he killed it and he prepared it for his table. And when David heard this story, he erupted in anger. He yelled, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathaniel flipped it around on him and said, David, you are the man. And in that case, it was not a compliment. You are the man in the story. You are the rich man. You took a man's wife and then you had him killed to cover your tracks. You are the rich man who preyed on the poor man. And suddenly David's eyes were open to his hypocrisy. Suddenly he saw the blind spots in his faith and he finally admitted, I have sinned against the Lord. And he broke down. See, when you don't see your sin, when you don't see those dangerous areas in your life, when you don't have those guardrails set up, You may need a brother and sister in Christ to lovingly bring it to your attention. To to nudge you back in the right direction. To set your feet back on the rock. Understand church, that isn't judgment. That's love. When it's handled the right way. And then a second scenario. You're aware of your sin, but you try to hide it. When I was working in student ministry, One of my responsibilities was leading a small group for high school guys and it was always either the most rewarding or the most frustrating hour of my week and there was no in between. You know one Sunday morning I remember our conversation took an unexpected turn towards practical ways for pursuing sexual purity. The LifeWay lesson did not go there. The LifeWay lesson gave nothing to allow it to go there but somehow we got there. And it was awkward, it was weird, but it ended up being this, this beautiful moment where a group of 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds were having honest conversations about how they could set up safeguards in their lives and how they could hold one another accountable and it ended up being this really encouraging moment. So so some Sundays were like that. But then I remember another Sunday morning where our conversation centered on circumcision. And not for fun, we were in the book of Galatians, and Paul talks about it a lot there, but we spent way too long having to outline and explain the process of circumcision to a ninth grader who just couldn't wrap his mind around the concept. I mean, we explained it from every angle, we were completely off the rails, there was no going back to the lesson at this point, and I finally had to throw up the white flag and say, you know what? Why don't you ask your dad about it when you get home? Let's just, let's just do that. When you get home, say, Dad, what is circumcision? And, and he will walk you through it. And so every Sunday was hit or miss. There were these great, amazing Sundays, and there were these other Sundays where I wanted to just go home and just beat my head against the wall. And one of these Sunday mornings, one of my high school guys brought a problem to my attention. He came to me to, to file a grievance, and he was was not excluding any details. He came to me and he said, Bo, I'm going to be completely honest with you. And and I expected nothing less from this kid. You know, some teenagers, you kind of have to twist their arm to get information out of them. This was not one of those guys. If you ask him what's wrong, he's going to tell you how long do you have, and he's going to lay out all of it, everything that's in his mind, stream of consciousness. He says, Bo, I'm going to be honest with you. I went to a party Friday night. I drank some alcohol and I got drunk. I I know I shouldn't have done it and I'm not proud of it. But let me tell you something. I came to church this morning where I should experience grace. And I had someone call me out. I had someone question my decisions. I had someone judge me. But I don't know what this person is thinking because the Bible clearly says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And it was a a fascinating conversation because he knew he was wrong, but he was furious because another person agreed he was wrong. You see that? He was angry because he was trying to keep his sin hidden, and now it was out in the open with this other person. When you are, are knowingly sinning and you are willingly covering it up, you are creating a growing distance between the person you are and the person you are projecting to be. And, and, and you can live a double life. You can. A lot of us have mastered it. And you can live a double life while attending church actively. I know you can because I've done it myself. You can walk in the light on Sundays and you can gravitate towards the darkness Monday through Saturday. You can do it because you're only allowing those around you to see what you want them to see. You know, social media has heightened this for us. And you may have a friend, you may know of a couple who's having marital problems, who's been fighting for months, whose, whose marriage may be on the rocks, but if you look at their family pictures from beach vacation, they look completely happy. You may know a young woman who is riddled with anxiety to the point where she doesn't want to get out of bed in the morning, but if you look at the pictures, if you look at the profile that she's putting in front of you, she's smiling in every single one of them. And real life functions the same way. We can only see what you project. We can only see the external. But Jesus can see the internal and the external. Jesus combats the darkness in both places. That's why Jesus looks at these men and says, y'all go ahead and stone her on one condition as long as you aren't guilty of breaking the law yourself. If you're free of sin, let it fly, guys. If you're free of sin, take her life right now. And then he wrote in the sand again, and one by one, from from the oldest and probably the most wise to the youngest, they walked away until Jesus was alone with the woman. And he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus didn't condemn her. He didn't ignore her sin. He didn't excuse her sin. He acknowledged her sin, but he didn't condemn her. He forgave her. She was embarrassed. She was ashamed. She was humiliated. She'd been caught in adultery. She'd been dragged through the center of town. She had been thrown at the feet of the holiest man in Jerusalem. And she was surely about to be stoned. And she heard these men say, she's guilty. We have multiple witnesses. Do we have your permission to stone her? And as she waited on Jesus' verdict, she was probably thinking death would be a welcome prospect. She was completely disgraced. And then something amazing happened. Jesus took her disgrace and he covered it with his grace. And he leveled the playing field for her by quietly making each man admit his own sin. And then instead of condemning her, he forgave her. You see, this young woman went through hurdle after hurdle to hide her sin. She did everything she could to keep this sin in the darkness. And when she was dragged before Jesus, her worst fears materialized. She was completely exposed. Her darkness had met the light of the world. But he didn't condemn her. He transformed her. In a moment, she went from a person who hid in the darkness to a person who thrived in darkness. light he took her sin and shame and he turned it into her testimony and that sin that she was so afraid to let the world see became the story that she loved to tell the world and it's probably why we have it in our bibles today because it became a story that was told over and over and over again but don't miss jesus final words to her He didn't give her a license to continue sinning. He gave her a reason to stop. Not only did he forgive her past, he transformed her future, and he said, go and sin no more. Church, your sin never surprises Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? When he took your sin to the cross, he bore the judgment for every sinful action attitude and thought you have ever had and you will ever have. Your sin can't surprise him because he's already received the punishment for it. And so we can't say for sure if this story belongs in the Gospel of John. We can't say for sure if if John wrote it. But We can certainly say that the themes of this story are are, are the echoes of the Gospel of John and the echoes of the rest of the Old Testament. And it's one of the central themes we see over and over again that in Christ, new life is possible. And so what I want you to know this morning is that if you're a Christ follower, you are free from condemnation because Jesus paid it all. So rest in His grace. Rest in His goodness. Rest in His forgiveness. Remember and reflect on that moment when he looked at you in the bottom of the valley and said, Neither do I condemn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that that you saw fit to preserve your word for us for all these years. Lord, we thank you that we we live in an age where Bible translations are, are easy to come by. And Lord, we know that having this, this, this copy of Scripture in our hands means that we're standing on the shoulders of, of many men and women before us who've done the the work of of copying page after page after page. And so Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, we thank You for the, the overarching themes that we see in this story and throughout the Gospel of John. That Christ is the light of the world. That Christ is the light of the world that illuminates the darkness within us. Father, I pray for my church family, for everyone who's under the sound of my voice. Father, whether they are a Christ follower or not, there's a possibility that in their life there may be something they're hiding, something they're terrified to to be exposed, something they don't want other people to see, something they think would ruin them if it ever got out. Father, show us this morning that there's beauty in confession. There's beauty in taking the weight of sin off of our shoulders. There's there's beauty in laying aside our double life. Lord, it's hard enough to be one person, much less two people. So Father, help us to see Jesus this morning as the light of the world. We pray these things in in His name because He's sufficient.